All right. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. We are going to continue our summer in the Psalms this morning, and I do want to uh, extend a special welcome. If you're a guest with us today, just want you to know we're really happy that you're here. And I also want to extend a welcome to uh, members of our Lake Nona campus. Uh, they are here. Many of them are here with us this morning as well. So welcome uh, to you all. It's good to all be together. All right, Psalm chapter 2. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 568. This is God's holy and true word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word and its power and the way that you speak to us through it. Father, we want to hear your voice this morning, and we want to hear the voice of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. We do ask that you would just give us eyes to see his glory and ears to hear the good news and courage, Lord, to stand fast and to continue to proclaim uh, the good news to this world uh, that so desperately needs to know that you are gracious And that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And we pray that you would uh, use this time to work in our hearts, change us, make us more like Jesus, equip us to take the good news of the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are in this sermon series called Summer in the Psalms. We're uh, looking at different psalms all summer long, like we did a couple years ago. And um, last week we looked at Psalm 1, and we're looking at Psalm 2 today. Psalm 1 and 2 really go together. They're both the beginning of the psalms, and so that's why we're looking at uh, number 2 today. And then going forward, we will bounce around quite a bit, looking at all sorts of different psalms. Um, the psalms are such an important part of the Bible for us to understand and for us to uh, draw from and read and meditate upon. One of the things about the Psalms that's really huge is they help us 
express emotions that we sometimes don't even realize we have or, or realize how to express some of the things that we're feeling. Uh, John Calvin said of the Psalms that uh, within the Psalms we find the anatomy of the soul. In other words, that like every single emotion or feeling that you could possibly have as a human being is in the Psalms somewhere. And another person has said that uh, all of God's word speaks to us, but the Psalms are designed to very often speak for us. And so it's a really amazing gift that God has given us in the Psalms. And it's, it's one of the reasons we want to be very familiar with them. You know, speaking of emotions that we are dealing with, emotions that we may not know how to quite uh, put words to, uh, one of the things that I would imagine many of you, maybe all of us, are thinking about, uh, emotionally anyway, is the way things are moving in our country and the way that there seems to be a rising level of hostility towards Christianity. I would imagine most of you have felt that if you've watched the news at all. It just seems like suddenly uh, the, the whole country just does not like Christians and does not like Christianity and wants to uh, begin to silence us and um, create challenges for us. I mean, some of you are probably familiar with the Duggar family. Um, you, can't, you don't know all of them. You can't know all of them. There's like 25 of them or something like that. But, you know, the Duggar family, they're the ones on, they used to be on TLC, I think 19 or 20 kids and counting or whatever. And uh, they went through a very difficult time. They're going through it again. Uh, Twelve years ago, uh, their son did some uh, egregiously terrible things to other members of their family. Uh, and then he repented of that and they forgave him for that and they were past that. <clears throat> And then just recently, a tabloid magazine was able to somehow illegally get this young man's sealed records from when he was uh, a youth, when these things took place. And so they plastered this information all over the Internet. There was tons of slanderous stuff that went out, totally misrepresenting the Duggar family in a number of ways. You might have seen their interview on Fox News where they tried to uh, clean up the story a little bit and help people understand what really happened. Now, they're not denying anything about uh, what happened or how horrible it was and how hard it was. But the bottom line is what they one of the things that you can see is just the way that uh, there was seemingly an agenda, not just to sort of break some news, but to destroy them. And on top of that, you've seen all sorts of different ways in which Christians are being targeted and uh, horrible things are being said about us, things that are not true, and uh, you may be sort of experiencing a, a frustration and a question of why? Why, why is this happening? I mean, what, what, here in America, why is there suddenly this animosity towards Christianity, and, and how far is it going to go? And that's why Psalm 2 is so powerfully and perfectly relevant for our time. I mean, it's relevant for all time, because what it teaches are things that are both timely and timeless, uh, just like all of God's word. But uh, one of the things I love about Psalm 2 is just it helps us understand the rising level of animosity toward Christianity. And at the same time, it helps us to find comfort as well as courage to continue to do what we've been called to do, which is to proclaim the gospel to all nations and make disciples of those who believe. 
so that's our focus for this morning. And, and here's what I think God is speaking to us, to you and me this morning. When you feel animosity toward Christianity rising, look to Christ for comfort and for courage to continue to proclaim the good news. And I think uh, I love Psalm 2 because it's just all about Christ, and we will uh, find our comfort and I think our courage as well as we do this. If you're uh, taking notes, here's where we're going to ha- go today. Four things I want to talk about. Uh, the rejection of God and the sovereignty of God, the Son of God, and then the salvation of the ungodly. The rejection of God, the sovereignty of God, the Son of God, and the salvation of the ungodly. Uh, keep your Bibles open. What really want to walk right through these verses. Would love for you to be looking at God's word as we do so. Uh, take a look at verses 1 through 3. Let's talk about the rejection of God. And here's just a simple statement that we see taught all through the scriptures. A society's animosity towards Christianity is a side effect of its rejection of God's rule over all things. Okay? A society's or a culture, a country's, you name it. A society's animosity toward Christianity is a side effect of its rejection of God's rule over all things. Take a look at verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, one of the things to recognize about Psalm 2 is it was written by David and it's originally about David. It's about David becoming king. Uh, And one of the things that we know about the scriptures is uh, David or, or about David in the scriptures, that is, is David was constantly under attack. One of the things we see in the Psalms is the constant attack of the nations against David, really, and against uh, the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. And ultimately, what that was is is the the nation's animosity towards God himself and therefore his chosen king on the earth. And so what's interesting is the apostles then take this and they apply it to Jesus. So they help us to see that what this is really about is the true and better David, Jesus himself. So take a look at this. Very interesting. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were uh, arrested and then they were released and, and they went to pray because the, basically the people in the city were trying to keep them from preaching, keep them from healing people, keep them from making disciples. And what's interesting is we see that in Acts 4, in a prayer, they quote Psalm 2 and they attribute it to being about Jesus. So listen to this. Acts 4, 27, uh, 24 through 27. Uh, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, though, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So, now, so they've just quoted Psalm 2. Here's how they apply it. It says, verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, Psalm 2 is ultimately about Jesus. It's ultimately about the fact that the Romans and the Jews, okay, the nations, were taking out their rage against God and his anointed king, being Jesus, by persecuting the apostles. Okay? 
Just like in the Old Testament, the nations would rage really against God by attacking David and the kingdom of Israel. Now in the New Testament, we see that ultimately this is about Jesus and the anger that people have against Christians and Christian doctrine is really a side effect. It's a byproduct of their uh, re- rejection of God, their refusal to bow to God and be ruled by God. It's a, it's a hatred that we would all have if it weren't for the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's really, it's a hatred for God and a hatred for his rule. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 30, that people apart from the grace of God are haters of God. And that's what we have to understand. Their hatred is to God, and then they take it out on God's people. Um, Jesus said that this would happen. In John 15, 18, Jesus told us, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You see what I'm saying? The, uh, you see what the word is saying, rather? That our culture's anger towards Christianity is really just an extension of our culture's refusal to, uh, to submit to God. It's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of their rejection of God Almighty himself. Fallen humanity rejects God's rule. They do not want to be ruled by God. Look at verse 3 again. That's what verse 3 is saying. So this is what the heart, the the non-believing heart says. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, In other words, the language that's being used there is language that you would use if you were describing the ropes and the yoke that would be put on a farm animal by a farmer uh, so that he could use that animal to till his field or whatnot. Okay, so that animal is under the yoke of the farmer doing what the farmer wants him to do. And that's the imagery that the the fallen human heart is saying, no, I will not accept a yoke. Absolutely not. I want to be free from any yoke. So really what they want is to be free or to not be under God's rule and they take it out on us. Our society is really uh, making the classic mistake of shooting the messenger. You know where that comes from? Don't shoot the messenger. I didn't know either, so I looked it up. Uh, this is where that comes from. Uh, the, in the second century, a Greek historian named Plutarch was writing about an Armenian emperor named uh, Tigranes. Should we go that? I don't know how to pronounce it. But Tigranes uh, the Great. And so he, he, he receives word from a messenger that this Roman official uh, named Lucullus is going to come and talk to him. And for whatever reason, this enrages him. And so he has the messenger killed. Now, why do they say don't shoot the messenger? Because here's what happened to to Granis. Over time, nobody would tell him anything that they didn't think he wanted to hear. So what happened? He no longer heard the truth from people, did he? And you can guess, it it did not work out for him. So the, the, the culture, the world, the nations, including this one, really rejecting God and therefore then really trying to shoot the messenger. And so what do we need to know from that? We need to know that we can't let the raging of the nations around us silence us. We have too good of news. We have too serious of a commandment to proclaim and demonstrate the good news to all people. People's eternal souls are at stake. And so we can't Refrain from speaking what God has told us to tell to the nations. We cannot be silenced. And, and then the best way, and, and this is scary though, I know that, like I get that. 
And the best way, therefore, to continue to stand firm and just be messengers, okay, is to, to really think about and, and celebrate the sovereignty of God. So let's do that. Look at 4 through 6. Talk about the sovereignty of God. Here's another thing that we can see in all the scriptures. God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem that way. Okay? And this should give us great courage and great comfort. He's always in control, even when it doesn't seem that way. Take a look at 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, so God's response to the rejection of the nations, to his rule and to his king, Jesus, uh, the, the response is that God laughs and then gets deadly serious as he proclaims that he has set his king uh, to whom all must bow and that King Jesus is going to rule no matter what. Okay. It's a, it's a sobering thing. Really, it's a gracious thing for God to laugh here. It's pretty much the only place in Scripture where we see God laughing. But he laughs because it shows the absurdity of the idea that humanity can somehow reject God forever. Without facing his justice. Uh, this is what James Montgomery Boyce says. Uh, this is what... Human attempts to throw off the rule of the sovereign God deserve. It is understandable that sinners should want to reject God's rule. That is what sin is, the repudiation of God's rule in favor of one's own will. But although it is understandable, the folly of this attempt surpasses belief. How can mere human beings expect to get rid of God? Okay, and so that laughing shows that absurdity, but then it also, uh, it really brings us into connection with a very deep and sobering irony. And it also takes us back to Acts chapter 4, because even though the nations are raging and they think that they're maybe somehow going to successfully free themselves from God's rule, uh, they're actually operating according to plan. Now looking at Acts 4.27 again, where they've just, remember, they've just quoted Psalm 2. And uh, 27 and 28, I didn't read 28 last time. Uh, this is what it says. That, uh, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what that tells us is that God is sovereign. Even when things seem to be going very poorly for God's people, God is in control and a plan, a perfect plan that he's been unfolding from the beginning is still being unfolded. Nothing can thwart his plan. Nothing can go against his plan. And so it's even in his plan. It's a very sobering, sobering thing. But it's also very comforting because what we know is that God is always in control. And since we know God is good, that He's even even the bad things that happen to us He's working for good. Think about the, one of the, my favorite illustrations of this in the scriptures would be Joseph. Joseph in the book of Genesis, if you remember, you know, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he went through a long, very difficult journey, but wound up in power in Egypt, right? Therefore, at the right time, he was able to provide food and salvation really for uh, many, many people. And that's what uh, is being addressed in Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph is speaking to his brothers after the fact here. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. 
as they are today. And so it's, it's, it's just a principle that we need to understand that even when God does not seem like he's in control, he is. Nothing is happening in this world outside of his plan. There are no maverick molecules, as uh, R.C. Sproul used to say. So it may seem that he's out of control. If anything, it just means that he's gearing up to do something that will uh, reveal his power and glory in an amazing, amazing way. This is why John Flavel hundreds of years ago said, Oh, be not too quick to bury the church before she is dead. The bush may be all in a flame, but shall never be consumed. And this is what um, Jesus promised, by the way, in Matthew 16, 18. He said, The gates of hell will not prevail against what? The church. So God is in control. Things are going according to plan. And that can give us great comfort and great courage to continue on to preach the gospel, to tell the good news to our neighbors and to the nations, even though there seems to be this rising level of hostility around us. Now, speaking of what Jesus said about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, the next thing we see in verses 7 through uh, 9 and uh, even all the way to 11, it's, it's, it's just totally focused on Jesus. And let's do that. Now look at 7 through 11, talk about the Son of God. Uh, and really what you want to see here is that Jesus was crowned, was crowned at the resurrection. He is ruling and reigning right now and will return to judge the world and establish uh, heaven on earth. Okay, so it's really amazing here. Verse 7 and 8 and 9 are uh, really Jesus speaking about what God has said to him. And it tells us about the past, present, and future. Okay, so take a look at this. Uh, really, the verse 7 is uh, aiming us at the cross. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, originally that would have been about David. That was language David was using to acknowledge that God had made him king. But again, it points us to the true and better David, who is Jesus. And so it's, it's amazing because the apostles show us in the New Testament that this is talking about Jesus. This is Jesus one of the ways that we see that is the way that we see God saying, you are my son to Jesus a couple different times. That is uh, baptism and at the transfiguration. You're probably familiar with that. But what's, what's interesting about this is that phrase, today I have begotten you. What does that mean? Well, if we let scripture interpret scripture as we should, uh, take a look. Uh, in Acts 13, 32 and 33, it says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. You see that? So that is referring to the resurrection. That is referring to the time when Jesus was risen from the dead by God, which was the proof that God has accepted what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so through faith, not through anything we do, but through faith, if we will trust him, then Jesus' perfect life is accredited to our account like we lived a perfect life. Jesus' death for sin is accredited to our account like we died a death to sin. It's all how we are saved. The resurrection proves that God has accepted what Jesus has done so that we can be fully and permanently reconciled to him. And that's what the apostles uh, are showing us Psalm 2, verse 7, is referring to. Isn't that amazing? Now, uh, it also would tell us then that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. You may not see it. It may not seem like it, but he is. Uh, in fact, that's what Hebrews 2, 8 tells us. It talks about God putting everything in, a, in subjection to Jesus. He left nothing outside his control. 
But then it says, um, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So that's why we have to believe that he is in control. Everything is in subjection to him right now. And you know where we do see it? Where we do see it is in disciple making. Look at verse 8. That talks about the present. It's really, it points us directly at the Great Commission. What is this saying? What did God the Father say to God the Son? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We know that David never uh, uh, had the nations uh, belonging to him. He never uh, had uh, the ends of the earth his possession. So this is very clearly a prophecy pointing directly at Jesus. And it tells it, it, it ties everything in with the Great Commission. So Jesus is raised from the dead and declared to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in Matthew 28, he says, as king, it's his enthronement speech, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. So, so every time somebody hears the gospel and believes and begins the process of being made into a disciple, that's where we see Things in subjection to him. That's why it's so important that we are, as followers of Christ, that we are bowed to him. That we are learning to observe all that he has commanded us. Because it proclaims to the world that, yes, indeed, he is in control. He is, uh, everything is in subjection to him. So it's, it's a call for each of us, not only to obedience, but also to, to make the greatest contribution to the completion of the Great Commission as we possibly can. Because that is how uh, the kingdom of God is being made more and more visible in the world. And it's also a reminder, verse 9 then points us to the future. So verse 7 is about the past. Verse 8 is about right now. And then, as scary as it may be, verse 9 is about the future. It's about the return of Christ. Where God says to Jesus, you shall break them, that's the nations, with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And this is a part that we sometimes don't like to think about as much. We, we, don't, we don't like to think about the fact that Jesus does intend to return and judge the world and carry out the wrath of God on all who uh, do not believe. Uh, but that is what it's, is being said here. And in fact, again, that's, that's what the apostles uh, attribute uh, this to, is, is Jesus' return. We see that in the way that it's quoted in Revelation 19.15. John wrote that from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Just like Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father In other words, Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross. And if we believe, we're free, we're forgiven. He is right now gathering in his his inheritance, the nations. And one day, whether we like it or not, he will return to destroy those who have not bowed to him. So the time between the resurrection and the return is, is is um, is the ultimate grace period okay you know you think about like when when something is due uh and maybe you're, you're when you lived in an apartment or maybe you live in an apartment right now 
it's due, your rent is due on the first, but first, but as long as you get it by the fifth, there's a grace period, you know what I'm talking about? Well, what Psalm 2 says, what the Bible says, is that the acceptance of God's rule and reign was due a long time ago, but we are now in a grace period. Where the nations are being gathered in. And so, the acceptance of that rule over humanity uh, is, is what uh, is expected and what is we are to preach. And that's why uh, when we are thinking about the nations and when we're thinking about people who don't know the Lord, we have to keep in mind that Jesus is returning. That he is going to return and he is going to judge the living and the dead. Like we will confess in the Apostles' Creed before we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, we need to think like this. This is Charles Spurgeon. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. So if you're not a believer, if you're not, have you not, if you've not accepted by faith God's rule in your life, you have to understand that there will come a day and you will face the judgment of God and you will not stand. Um, and believers, therefore, we, we, this is just another reason why we can't be silent about God's time-sensitive grace to the world. Okay? We've got to be bold. We've got to, on faith, continue to step out and proclaim the good news to people. And to remember that when we are sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit is accompanying us, is with us. The elders and deacons in training and I were talking about how, like, even if you don't have this perfectly exquisite gospel presentation, if you can kind of get the main points out, the Holy Spirit can use bad gospel presentations. Uh, to save bad people. Okay? So this Psalm 2 is such a, a reminder that we need to be uh, determined to continue to proclaim the good news no matter what happens around us, no matter what the cost, uh, because we're talking about people's eternity. We're talking about the salvation of the ungodly. So let's finally, let's look at verses 10 through 12. The salvation of the ungodly. So here is the application. This is the application of Psalm 2. Psalm 2's application is in Psalm 2. And it says this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And there's the, the beautiful aspect here. That there is no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. Okay? There is no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. If we kiss the son, that is, by, that is repenting of your sin and that is believing the gospel and pursuing a life of obedience. It is bowing down to kiss uh, him. That's what that is. It's, a, it's choosing to live a life of repentance and faith and obedience. It is accepting the rule of Christ. And just because we are a church of this size, it is almost certain, but at least very likely, that there are several people who attend here and you really don't, you really haven't accepted the rule of Christ in your life. You, you go through the motions and you show up to church and, and you talk about God sometimes, but there is a real lack and failure to really kiss the sun, to truly repent and accept the yoke onto you. And here's what's so 
ironic and sad about that. Not only does that leave you in your sin, but this is what Jesus says about this yoke that the nations are so adamant to be free of. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it talks about serving the Lord with fear, or that word can also be translated as reverence, and then rejoicing with trembling. Why this mix? This mix of joy and fear as we follow Jesus. And it's because Jesus is no ordinary king. He is the king of kings who cannot be stopped. And while he came first as a lamb to die for our sins, he's coming again as a lion to judge uh, those who uh, continue to refuse to submit to him, to those who continue to reject him. And because of that, because of the, the rage of the nations and, and the animosity towards God and Jesus, uh, another reason that we have both joy and fear is because as followers of Jesus, if we're going to continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel, we're going to pay for it. It's going to cost us. And so there's fear in that. But the good news is that we know for a fact, no matter what is happening, he is in control. No matter what is happening, the nations are being gathered in. And no matter what is happening, anybody who receives Christ through repentance and faith will be saved. And so we keep those things in mind, knowing that even though being a Christian is not safe, Jesus is good. Just like in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What a great scene uh, where uh, the kids are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about this Aslan. Who's this Aslan? And obviously in the story, Aslan is representative of Christ. So uh, is he a man? Lucy asks. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood. And the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They will either they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And as we trust Christ... And continue to faithfully proclaim the good news for the sake of the lost and for the glory of God. We have to remember that that's true of Jesus too. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I have uh, remained silent from time to time on things and not taken opportunities to... 
proclaim what you have called us to proclaim. And I confess that that is out of fear of man. And uh, I confess that I know that the Lord Jesus has told me not to fear man who can ultimately do nothing to me, but to only fear you who has the right and authority to place people into hell. And your word says, I don't have to fear you because perfect love casts out fear and the perfect love for me was seen in Christ's death on the cross for me and for all who believe. And so I confess, Lord, that it's scary and that it's hard to stand fast knowing that it will cost us. But would you, by your spirit and for your glory, would you embolden us to strong faith to continue to tell the world the good news because of what it cost you, because of what it cost Christ? And would you help our church to be a beacon of the truth, no matter what it costs us, for the sake of the lost and for your glory, We pray in Jesus' name, amen.